Join me every month for the inspiration to find your finish line. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Find Your Finish Line. I'm Mike Riley, your host, and this podcast, as you know, is about trying to get to those finish lines. Sometimes the hard part's the start line, but once you get there, finding your finish line is one heck of a journey. You've got all the training. It's not only finding the finish line at a race and event, it's also in life. So we'll talk to successful people that have jumped a lot of hurdles to get to their finish lines. My guest today, I'm very excited to have him on, to be able to bring him in to finish lines over the last, oh my gosh, 15, 16 years has been a pure pleasure. He's an eight-time Ironman champion. He's won Ironman South Africa three times. He was second in Kona. He's had two force in Kona. He's a husband. He's a father. And I'll tell you, he's the type of guy where he'll say those are his greatest achievements in life. And I, it is my pleasure to introduce to Hoff himself, Ben Hoffman. How you doing, buddy? Oh, man. Great. Uh, great to be on here. And uh, yeah, hearing your voice, calling out all those accolades makes, takes me right back to the to the finish line like you were just talking about. It's uh, a pleasure to be on here and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this chat with you. Well, I, it's great to have you too. And and by the way, the, the other great accomplishment, Patagonia Man, which we'll get into that you won in uh, December down in Patagonia. Uh, I, I've always been enamored by that event, so we'll talk about that. But let's let's jump back a little bit in Ben Hoffman's past. Uh, tell us the story of how you got involved with triathlon, even back in your uh, uh, school days. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was, when I was younger, I didn't really have any kind of triathlon background. I mean, I did a little bit of running in high school. Um, and I, you know, had some bike touring background. I did some bike touring with my parents when I was in high school. Um, but to be honest, other than that, no swim background at all. I played golf, I played basketball, I played soccer. Um, those were kind of some of my main sports actually in high school. So it wasn't until I went to the university of Montana and Missoula that I got, you know, connected with the triathlon team up there. And it was actually the summer before that. Interestingly enough, I decided to get in my pickup truck. It was an old 83 Toyota pickup truck. And I drove up to Alaska after my freshman year in college. And uh, I was living out of the back of my truck, partially because it broke down. I didn't have anywhere else to stay. <laughs> and uh, I was trying to figure out you know, what to do that summer. I ended up working at a grocery store in uh, Haines, Alaska, uh, on the inside passage there. But when I was in Prince Rupert, when my truck first broke down in British Columbia, I went to the library there and I picked up a book and randomly it was about Iron Man. I mean, I kind of, I knew a little bit about it. I'd seen it on TV, whatever it was, but I didn't really know anything. And that was kind of my first real glimpse into triathlon. I remember reading the book and kind of, I couldn't tell you which book it was. I just remember it was about the Iron Man triathlon and, you know, specifically Hawaii, obviously. And it kind of got my interest, you know, going with the sport. And when I got back to the uh, University of Montana that fall to start my sophomore year, I met up with the triathlon club team. I saw a flyer and I met up with them, started training with them. And that was 2003 in the fall. Did my first race in 2004 as a little sprint triathlon called the Grizzly Triathlon. And, you know, I was lucky because at that time, University of Montana was one of two places, maybe three, San Diego, Boulder, and whatever, for whatever reason, Missoula, Montana were kind of the hotbeds actually. And we had some really good resources there, a professional triathlete who I'm sure you called across the line many times, Matt Seeley, uh, was involved in, you know, kind of the community there. And we just had a bunch of people, a lot of good information. And I got, I got my start there. So those are kind of the early days. And, uh, 
And I was just, when you were starting to say, calling me across the line and thinking about how many years it's been in Ironman racing, I was thinking that there might have been some races that you were calling in Canada in 2006 when I was living out of my vehicle up there. I'm not sure if you were doing other races outside the Ironman brand, but I'm pretty sure you were at a couple of events up there. And uh, I think you may have called me across a line or two uh, back in the early days, 2006 or so, maybe. Yeah, you you call those the early days. I call those my mid days of my career. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, for me, early days. I mean, that was the summer of glory. We decided to go live out of our car and see if we could make it for the summer. There was a few races in Canada that had prize money, and you didn't have to be a professional to win the money. So you could just go up there and race against everybody if you had a pro license or not. It didn't matter. And I remember, I think I think it was twenty eight or thirty eight hundred dollars that I made that summer. Um, I did one race in the United States in Bend, Oregon. It was called Pacific Crest, and the rest of them were all in Canada. And I put together, you know, a few decent results, a few podiums, and I won, like I said, maybe three or four thousand dollars. And I was like, "Well, here we yeah. go." You know, I'm fresh out of college. I was like, "How much money do you really need <laughs> when you're living out of a car?" And uh, that was kind of the beginning of my professional career. I moved to Colorado and uh, moved back to Durango and started training there. You know, part time, working part time, and then eventually went full time with it. So. Yeah, those are the early days for me and kind of like kind of middle days for you. But I think maybe we crossed paths. I'm not sure. I did a few half Ironmans um, up in BC that summer. I'm trying to remember the names. There was like a there was a race in Abbotsford. There was a Peach Classic. There was a few other ones up there in the Cologne area. I remember the Abbotsford. I don't know if I was there. I I I was up there a few times. But well, Ben, what do you think? What do you think it was that? That lit the fire in you with triathlon. I mean, obviously you go, oh wow, I won three, four thousand dollars. I can continue to do this. But did all of a sudden you realize, you know what, this is this is kind of gonna be my passion. This is the direction that I think I really want to go. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that I mean I, I mentioned the money, but the reality is and and I mentioned it mostly as a joke, right? Because truthfully, in my entire career, I would say that was not the focal point. It's something I've been aware of. I always wanted to make sure that. I felt like I was making a career out of it, you know, in terms of the financial side as well. But it was never the primary objective for me. And I think um, really what I realized early on was that I just had a passion for, you know, the pursuit of excellence, really seeing how good I could be at the sport, seeing how hard I could push myself and how fast I could go. But it was a lot of it was just the lifestyle, the day to day, the training and the people that you hung out with, the community, the people that you met when you were traveling, um, the people at the races, obviously, and just that sort of shared suffering and, uh, you know, an enjoyment too of an accomplishment like this. So I would say overall, the thing that really drew it, drew me to the sport and kept me coming back was that, that high, that pursuit of that high level of performance and excellence and then excellence in day-to-day life too, you know, just trying to make sure that you were optimizing your days and getting the most out of them and, and just sharing it with that community of people that were like-minded. What do you, what do you think Ben Hoffman would be doing or how would you be producing income today if you didn't get into triathlon, Ben, what would you be doing? That's a really great question. It's so hard to imagine my life um, without this sport now and, you know, all the experiences I've had in it. But I would say that I've always been pretty independent. I mean, my father was a building contractor. He ran his own business and built custom homes. And I think that I was, from a young age, I was exposed, you know, to that, to that side of things where you could be kind of your own boss, right? So without a doubt, whatever career, you know, it would have been besides this, I I think I would have definitely been my own boss. Um, I will say I have a, you know, kind of a creative sort of artistic side, you know, I like to work with my hands, I like to build things, I like to be able to 
kind of have those tangible objects. So, you know, woodworking, ceramics, metalwork, I mean, those things have always drawn me in a little bit. Um, it's tough to make a living as an artist. It's tough to make a living as a triathlete too, but, uh, you know, maybe that's just, that's just it. I'm a sucker, you know, for punishment or something like that. But I could say something maybe in the architecture realm, you know, where I could incorporate that, where I could kind of have the hands-on and the design elements. I think that's always been intriguing to me and who knows, maybe something I would pursue after I'm done racing. You know, Ben, if you talk about going back, you do realize I knew your wife, Kelsey, before you did, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Actually. I think, uh, you know, Kelsey's done a couple of Ironman events as well. And, um, uh, you know, she grew up as a swimmer and, you know, she was obvi- obviously still, you know, an athlete. I mean, she loves yeah. biking now, but yeah, you guys actually cross paths you know, probably before I did. And, um, and then she worked for Ironman for a while, yeah. too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Did a lot of swim course stuff with them and did, did some marketing as well. And then she moved on to become, uh, you know, working for the professional bull riders, which was pretty cool. We got to have that experience as well. So, yeah. So what, what did, uh, I love this. I saw, I saw, I think you wrote it. You're the, the Hoff season. So what have you been doing during the Hoff season? You've been traveling with the family, but what do you do athletically? uh, when you take time off from triathlon? It's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's evolved over the years, right? Like my old off season used to be basically stepping away from any and all kinds of structured training and, and really anything that was, that had to do with triathlon. I mean, growing up in Western Colorado, uh, my, you know, like I was saying, some of the sports that I did when I was younger really weren't sports that you do in triathlon. I mean, I was a skier, I was a rock climber, you know, I went backpacking in the backcountry all the time with my family, went camping. Um, so kind of old off season used to be getting back to some of that as well as, you know, probably a little more, um, imbibing than I should have been doing, um, as a young <laughs> man. and, uh, you know, and, and eating kind of the junk foods and all that stuff and, and gaining some weight. But now that I'm a father, um, it certainly revolves more around my family. And, uh, yeah, like you just mentioned, we took a, a little family trip out to California, which is really cool. Saw some friends over new year's in Monterey. I did actually sneak in a couple of rounds of golf, which is something I like to do in my off season as well. Um, you know, I'm, I used to play in, in high school, as I mentioned, and it's a, it's a game I still love. Um, it's incredibly frustrating, I think, as you know, but it's also uh, it's also a lot of fun. And you know, at, at this stage in my life, I just like to go out there and play, and I can I can sort of detach myself from the expectations that I had when I was younger, when I was really focused and good at it. And just try to enjoy, you know, being out there and enjoy when I hit good shots and then let go of it when I don't. But, um, yeah, yeah, we were able to travel down the coast, spend some time as a family. And really, it's just about, you know, spending the day with the kids, you know, being really involved and just kind of watching them grow up and uh, and being more engaged and having more energy for that on a daily basis than when maybe I'm in full training during Ironman season. Right, right. You know, it's amazing. It's after dropping the microphone, Ben, everybody thinks I'm going to play golf a lot. How about if I, I, I say to him, how about if I just go ride my bike? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can do that, too. I don't know why golf's associated with, okay, old man, get out there and just go play golf. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said this, Mike, because actually I uh, I came across your interview that you did with uh, New York Times, <laughs> you know, where they picked up the fact that you had, you know, retired and that it was a big moment in our sport. And, um, and I noticed that you mentioned something about doing a 200-mile ride, which... If you know anything about me, that's my kind of thing. So I was going to make sure I put you on the spot and and held you to that because um, it might be something we have to link up for this year if you're really serious about a 200 mile. Well, 
You know, I love the media and I love Talia who did the interview, but I swear to goodness, I said a hundred miles. And all of a sudden when I read it, I go, I'm not going to do a 200 mile ride. (laughs) hundred is okay, but two, I've never done a 200 mile ride in my life. I know you have, but I, but I haven't. So, uh, I would play golf before I did a 200 mile ride. That sounds good. Well, maybe we'll get out for a hundred miles. That's still a big accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game for that. Mount Lemon, something like that. I can follow you up there. Perfect. So, what uh, when you go to your work, your workouts, and you're starting to get back into that now for, uh, for the season. Every workout, Ben, because I have age groupers all the time say, you know, I don't know what I want to do this workout, and sometimes their goals just aren't really set. When you go out and do a training workout, do you have an exact goal that you want to hit or do you sometimes just wing it? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on the time of year. I think as I get closer to a big race, I mean, it becomes more and more specific and honed in, obviously, and you're really focused on hitting those target powers and paces, et cetera. But especially in the early season, you know, I try to give myself some space and make sure that really what I'm trying to do is cultivate joy. You know, I want to enjoy the process and make sure that I'm not just creating this, uh, dynamic where, you know, I'm putting exercise as sort of a negative. I'm trying to create that, that positive feedback loop where I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm enjoying the process. And so really whatever that takes, I think for an athlete to establish is, is what they should be focused on, especially when they're coming back from an off season or a break of some kind. Um, it doesn't absolutely have to be swim, bike, run either. You know, I mean, if you're getting out there on cross country skis, if you live somewhere in winter, um, just going for a hike, whatever it is, moving the body, you know, something that's going to get you going and and kind of give you that positive feedback. Like I said, um, that's a step in the right direction. So it really is a bit of both, you know, like for example, um, this year, I've definitely been a little bit more flexible early season than I would be normally. Um, part of it is because my main goals are going to be shifted a little bit later in the year. Um, and, and I'm going to be doing some shorter distance stuff earlier. So I don't have the same demands in terms of volume. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to get out on the mountain bike a little bit more and just be, be relaxed about my kind of comeback, you know, and I'm finding it's working really well because my head's in a good space about it. Right. Right. Well, I, I had this question a little bit later in the podcast, but I'm going to ask it now because you led me into it. Was there ever a time in your professional career, Ben, where, you know, it, it just wasn't fun for you. You found it being a labor and you found it being like, Oh my goodness. I, I don't know if I want to go do this workout. Uh, have, have you had those types of uh, downs for lack of better word in, in your professional career? 100%. Um, you know, I would say that, that I do feel fortunate in the sense that this job I think is a special one that, um, that doesn't maybe have as many of those as some, as some other jobs out there. But a lot of it is attitude, too. I mean, it's, you know, it's the person, right, that approaches it, the way you think about it, um, you know, the kind of way that you frame, you know, your outlook. And I mean, I'm a big believer in in the the concept of there's only really one thing you control, which is your attitude. And, uh, you know, what I try to do is, like I said, maintain a positive one, try to look for the things that are good and, you know, be grateful for what I have and and what I'm doing. Um, But that's not to say that I don't have plenty of struggles. And, you know, I think it just changes. It evolves. Right. I mean, like any career where, you know, when you're younger, you have zero responsibility for the most part, you know, and all you're really focused on is kind of having fun with it. And then you start to build in these layers. You have sponsorships, you know, you have commitments, you have pressures after you perform at a race, both internally and externally. 
Um, and then you add a layer of something like a family, you know, I've got two young kids now and I feel responsible for, you know, putting food on the table. So yeah, it definitely changes things, but all the way through it, I just try to find, like I said, the positives, but I would say one of the things that I think sometimes happens when maybe an age group triathlete or somebody who doesn't do this job professionally, they see it from the outside and they've definitely put it on a pedestal. Um, but that's, you know, I think what I would communicate is that it's a lot like a lot of other jobs. I mean, you know, the way you're successful at this job is that you get up every single day and you do the work and some days you really love it. And some days you don't really love it and uh, you do the work regardless. Isn't it amazing though, after you do that work, no matter what the attitude was going in, the attitude's always pretty doggone positive coming out, isn't it? It's really cool. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing. And I'm glad you said that because I've always been a fan. I didn't, I wasn't the one that created this, but you know, the saying that you basically never feel worse after doing a run than before you started. So um, I think, and I, and that's another thing just to touch on what you just said and asked me that question about, you know, how this getting back into things and, and training in general, I would say that something is always better than nothing. Just get started and see where it goes. You'd be surprised how often things actually turn out way better than you imagined. If you were feeling a little bit bad before you started, you know, just get out there, give yourself a chance, just get it started and see where it goes. And I think most of the time you'll be pretty surprised and you'll feel like you accomplished something, even if you didn't nail the workout exactly like it was written, at least you did something. And that's always better than nothing. You know, and the, the part of that too, that always hits home for me is the relationships. I've been married 47 years and my wife Rose, she'll know. And what she'll say, she'll know if I'm in the mood or something's going on. She'll go, go for a run, go for a ride. Cause she knows I'll come back and everything will be better. I go, okay. Yeah. I was being, a, I was being a jerk. Okay. And you come back and you go, I'm not that jerk anymore. It's amazing how that, how that works. You'll find out about that long after your racing days. Well, I mean, I have my own version of it. It's slightly different, which is that sometimes when we're getting close to a big event and I put in a ton of work for it, if I get a little bit short with Kelsey, sometimes she's like, Oh, she knows she's like, Oh, Ben's ready to race now. You know, that's how she looks at it. Where she's like, he's getting a little bit, just a little edgy and a little bit, you know, tense. And I mean, I think when I finally get to like the day before the race, I, then I, then it's like, okay, I can relax and everything's done. You know, there's nothing more to do at this point, but in those final couple of weeks, when I get a little edgy like that, then it's actually a positive sign for us. So, uh, I can relate. <laughs> that's cool. Well, you've had some amazing performances that I've had the honor to be witness of. And uh, 2019, the last time, the third time you won Ironman South Africa. And then what was it, 2021, you were third in Chattanooga. But then last April in Texas, I, you had a tremendous day going like 757 in Texas, uh, running a 240. And uh, Magnus, Magnus Detlev was there on your tail, just what, 13 seconds back. What, why do you think you won that race? Because it, it was a tough day, tough performances, but you came out on top. Why do you think you came out on top? Well, I mean, it was a whole host of factors, to be honest with you. But I, I would say it kind of came down to a handful of things. I mean, first of all, I want to acknowledge that Magnus had a little bit of a mechanical on the bike. It cost him some time. Right. So it did allow, allow me back in the race. However that's kind of par for the course anytime, you know, and I've had my own share of, you know, mechanical setbacks, et cetera. So you just have to race the race as it stands, but, um, he's an incredible athlete. He put up an, a, an amazing battle that day. And, and in the end, I think for me, what really set me apart was I can remember at mile 20, when we had finally linked up and we were running side by side for that final 10 K, I just said to myself, I said, there is no way 
that I'm losing today. And I said that to myself. And, you know, I've had a few times when that's happened. I remember one time in 2015 racing Andy Potts in Calgary 70.3, same situation. We got into kind of a lockstep battle on the run. And I just said kind of to myself out of nowhere, I was like, there's just no way there's, that's not even an option. I'm winning this race. And once you make that decision, then you start to build a plan from there. And I think the next step for me after deciding that I was winning was, okay, well, I, I know, I know the end result, but let's work back from that to this moment right now. And how am I going to do, you know, from here to there. And basically what I did was I said to myself, I have the experience. This is literally Magnus's first Ironman event. And he does not know how bad it feels when you get into this final 10k he doesn't have that experience i mean he may have done a ton of training but it's completely different when you're out here on the race day and um you know i thought to myself he's feeling that piano on his back right now he's feeling his quads and he's wondering are my legs gonna even hold up am i even gonna make it you know because i've been there before i know that feeling and uh i, I thought to myself i definitely have the upper hand there because he's exploring that in his mind right now he's wondering if he can even get there he's in a lot of pain and then I looked down at his shoes and I, I, I mean, I'm a fan of the super shoes. I was wearing my own pair of them, but he was wearing the really tall ones from Nike and the alpha flies. And I, I saw that and I thought to myself, the final corner at Texas is, a you know, there's basically two turns. There's a 90 degree right hand turn. Then you drop to the bottom and there's a 180 degree turn to finish up a small uphill. And I had been there in 2015 when I raced it the first time. Didn't have a great day that day, but I knew the course. So I said to myself, the key to me winning this race is to get to the bottom of that 180 turn before him because he's a taller guy. He's a little bit, you know, uh, lengthier. And so I think when he gets to that turn at the bottom, it's going to be more difficult for him to manage that turn. If I can make sure I'm at the bottom there, even though there's still another 150 meters or whatever it is up the hill, I believe that I can hold the lead from that point to the line. So the whole key in my mind was to get to that bottom 180 first because I knew he'd be a little bit off balance in that turn. And as it turns out, I took you know, the inside line on that first right 90. And I thought he would go with me. But the second I hit the gas, he actually kind of crumpled. And uh, I think, you know, he was, it was everything he had to just stay with me up until that point. And when I made one more surge, he just wasn't really, he didn't, there was nothing left. But um, yeah, that was kind of the story of how that went down. And I really think, you know, it's the, it's the mental side of deciding like I did that you're going to win. And then it's also the tactical side of taking in the data and making sure that you're building a true plan that makes a lot of sense based on your skill set and what's going on in the environment around you. I don't know if anybody ever told you this, but uh, when you guys were on a 10 K, you know, we, we knew you were together, you and Magnus were together and the whole deal. And I only said to that, because I never make predictions or anything like that, you know, who's coming at me is who's going to be taken care of. And that's just how I've always worked. But I did say to the crowd, I said, well, there's only one advantage that Ben has over Magnus right now, because I think their running ability is really similar. It's that he knows this course. In my mind, I was thinking the turns and the final turn, because I've seen other people down at that final turn go, oh, my gosh, I didn't know it was that much of a U-turn, and they lose like 10 feet in, in a second. So uh, I said that to the crowd, and somebody afterwards came up to me and go, uh, how'd you know he's going to win? I go, I didn't know he was going to win. I just knew he knew the course a little better. So thank goodness I just heard that story for the first time. You confirmed that. So that yeah. was great. Well, I mean, you've been around the races. It doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I feel like you, uh, yeah. I mean, among your many skills is your, I think your, your memory, right? I mean, I remember early in my career hearing from other people before I had really encountered you at a race, just how incredible, I don't know if you have a photographic memory maybe you can speak to this, but I remember people telling me just your, 
yeah, your incredible knack for remembering individuals and the races that they've done through time. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that you remembered my 2015, my experience of being on that course. And uh, even though, like I said, it wasn't the day I wanted in 2015, um, I got my redemption in 2022. Yeah, you did. Talk, let's talk about, I've always been enamored with this event, as so many in our sport have, the Patagonia Man. I think the first time when I really hit home, I read what uh, Tim Don said about the race, you know, uh, the, the veteran of it. And so why did Ben Hoffman want to go down there and do that extreme triathlon? And then the weather, my gosh, you talk about extreme on weather-wise, the cold water, they had to shorten the swim a little bit. The bike, you looked like you were frozen. and But it seemed like you enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not even sure all the reasons that I decided to do it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, why? I mean, you don't even I mean, know. <laughs> now that you're saying it all back to me, none of it really makes sense, right? But, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. I like the tough, you know, courses. And and what part of what draws me to the sport of trap on an Ironman, too, is I think that, a couple of things, right? There's generally a linear relationship between the work that you put in the result you get. I mean, it's pretty honest, you know, you, you get out there and it's like, well, did you do the training or not? And I think when you take it to the extreme version where you get on these courses that are really difficult, you know, the ones that I've targeted through my career, like a Lake Placid, a Coeur d'Alene, you know, St. George, um, in South Africa. I mean, these races are probably on the more difficult end of the spectrum, Hawaii, of course, too. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's something that's always drawn me in is that sort of a unique, uh, extreme challenge, I guess. And so, yeah, this was, this was on my radar back to 2018. Um, we didn't make it work just, it's difficult timing. It's December, you know, it's always the end of the season. Um, but this year we were committed to it. And it's funny you mentioned Tim Don, he was one of my main, uh, resources actually for, you know, <laughs> gathering, gathering important data for this one, because yeah, it's totally different than the other race I've done. I mean, you really are reliant on having a support team you know you need to have a support crew person that's really with you all day long um and they can actually run with you for the last eight miles which is pretty cool and uh there's just a lot more logistics and planning that goes into it largely because it's so remote where it happens and then also because the environment like you mentioned is really difficult so you get a lot of uh yeah adverse conditions potentially you know on the day and we did we got all of it i mean it was uh we we got lucky in some ways and then we also got you know we got the full experience. I mean, they had to shorten the swim, unfortunately, because of, they almost canceled. I mean, there was white caps that were three or four feet tall. I mean, mm. finally, the wind died down enough that we could get half the swim in. But the water's freezing cold. The rain was pouring down. The wind was howling all day on the bike. And uh, the run is just another level of suffering. I mean, so much up and down, off-road, scrambling. I mean, it's crazy. But you look around in the moments that you can, and it's just the most beautiful place to be doing this kind of event. And I wouldn't change anything for the experience because it really did require um, everything I had to get to the line in first place. And, you know, it was a special experience that way where I think, yeah, I got what I wanted out of it, which was kind of a, you know, the ultimate challenge on the day. Well, that was a congratulations on that. But I had an athlete a few years ago come up to me and after they finished an Ironman, Mike, thank you very much for calling me an Ironman. That was fantastic. But, you know, and, and then they said, and that was, uh, that was as good as ringing the bell. I didn't know what he meant. 
And I go, oh, okay. Yeah, the bell, Patagonia. You know, I did Patagonia. I, I rang the bell, and I go, and I acted like I knew what I was talking about. I go, oh, okay. And then I went and asked somebody, I think Rock Fryer, oh, ringing that bell is, you know, you finish that race, you ring the bell. It's like the greatest thing ever. So was it, how was it ringing that bell? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it was really cool. And I, yeah, it's, to, I, you should see the video of me. Hope, I mean, maybe I'll send it to you after this is over, but yeah. yeah, there's a pretty cool video of me coming across the line. And because I was first, they have a, they have gates set up, these wooden gates that they actually open up and then you grab the bell after that. So not everyone gets the gates open. I got to have the gates open. Um, and then I came up to the bell and I was so ready to be done. I mean, I was like, depleted you know and i grabbed that thing and it was everything i had left i just just you know really shook the bell and rang it as hard as i possibly could and kind of yeah longer than probably most people do because it was just like i'm letting it all out now i finally got here you know and it was just something that uh i will never forget and then i proceeded to walk over to this grass median in the road and basically lay down for 15 minutes so um, yeah, it took everything I had to get there and the last couple ounces of energy I had were used to ring the bell with everything. So well, I'm glad you saved a little energy for the bell. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, everyone. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Curad Performance Series, the official medical supplier of Ironman. Curad's far infrared kinesiology tape encourages faster recovery and enhanced performance. Don't let the aches and pains of everyday training and racing slow you down. Make sure you check out all the Curad products at Amazon.com, at Walmart, and Ironman.com. And let Curad help you find your finish line. So Ben, who, besides your family and, and people in your life, who inspires you? Who inspires you to keep pushing to new barriers? I mean, definitely a lot of the athletes around me, you know, I mean, I think we see the sort of evolution that's happening in our sport right now. And <clears throat> I'm more on the tail end of my career, but I'm certainly inspired by, you know, the Norwegians who just obviously put up just amazing performances in Hawaii this year and, uh, and have been for the last several years. And then the younger generation too. I mean, you know, I'm friends with Sam Long, who's kind of coming through and a few others as well. And yeah, they just, they're very inspiring. You know, I think that it's, uh, yeah, it's like one. It's kind of this double-edged sword where you're like, yeah, you're inspired to be better, but then you're also kind of like glad that you're near the end because it's going to be a massive challenge to beat these guys moving forward. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it, you know, really all walks of life. I mean, people that are excellent at what they do, um, whether it's business or if they're an author, you know, um, you know, anybody really, I think that that's really excellent at what they do is an inspiration to me. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you mentioned my family, my parents, of course, are, have always been a big inspiration to me and taught me most of the life lessons that I feel like are important in my, in my own life. And then my children too, I mean, they inspire me in their own way, right? Like they just live life to the fullest, man. They just don't care about some of the stuff that we get wrapped up in. And, uh, it's really refreshing and inspiring in its own way to just look at them and think about the things that they are passionate about and, uh, and to kind of rekindle some of that in myself. Do you, do you see yourself saying or hear yourself saying the same things to your kids that your parents said to you? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how you think you're going to be different, but, uh, no, there's no difference. No, no, it's pretty well ingrained. I think, yeah, I'm a lot like my parents. So uh, I love that. So Ben, you, uh, you have a coach. You, have you always been coached? 
I mean, it's been kind of, so yeah, I've basically had two main coaches in my career. Early on in my career, I had, a, I was coached by a friend of mine who's similar age. His name is Elliot Bassett. He runs a company called Mountain Endurance and uh, we're still friends. He's still a coach. Uh, and then now the last, I guess it's been 2017 till now. So six or seven years I've been with Ryan Bolton, um, Bolton Endurance Sports Training and uh, yeah, that's been an incredible journey as well, working with Ryan. I mean, he is an Olympian, you know, from 2000 in Sydney. He was there right. for the first Olympics for triathlon, and he raced long course as well. He was a winner at Lake Placid, went to Kona a couple times. And, uh, yeah, now he just has a coaching business, works with a handful of elites and then, you know, a few age groupers as well. But, yeah, I uh, I did have a period of time in there in between those two coaches where I was sort of self-coached. and. You know, I would say my relationship with Brian is very collaborative now. I mean, because I've had so much time and I am the one living my life and there's a lot of new dynamics with a family and other things, too. Um, it You know, we kind of work together, I guess, to build the plan. And uh, but I think it's really important to have a coach. I think it's really great to have somebody to hold you accountable and give you that guidance and that sort of second set of eyes on everything. Yeah, I talked to so many age groupers, too, that when they start out, they usually just don't go looking for a coach. They may be part of a tri club and there's coaches in there. And, but after they finally make that decision, it says the best thing they ever did. Do, do you think, do you think you'd want to coach full time after all this? You know, I'm really curious about it. I will say it's definitely crossed my mind and it's something that I would like to explore. I think it would be a mistake if I didn't try it at least. Um, but I do, <clears throat> I think that I want to make sure that it's something that I, um, feel some passion for, and that I feel like I'm doing a great job at, right? I mean, I don't want to be out there just because I've done the sport and I know a lot about how to train doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be a great coach. And I recognize some of my own shortcomings and, you know, in my personality, sometimes I think, um, I have a, a tendency to, you know, have a difficulty understanding how other people don't understand something that I do sometimes, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think that's a pretty common thing. Um, but it's, I, I just want to be aware of my own weaknesses when it comes to those things too, and make sure that I'm really giving somebody what they need if I were to do coaching. But I think to answer your question in a long format, yes, I would like to, to, uh, play around with it a little bit, maybe as soon as this year, actually starting with that. And, uh, I think, it's kind of like when you see a doctor, right? A doctor gets to the age of retirement and it's kind of like, why are they retiring? They know everything. They've been around all this stuff now and they're a doctor. They can still be quite proficient at their job. And it feels a little silly to have done all this training and all this experience and knowledge that I have and to walk away from it without trying to give some back that way. I agree. And you know, the observation I have of coaches that have been ex-pros, ex-athletes, and got into coaching. It's amazing to me when I see the looks on their faces and how proud they are when they see their athlete do well at an event. It, it, even if they have 15 athletes out there racing, they're racing with each and every one of them, and they have that, the coach has that joy almost as much as I saw the joy on their face when they won a race. So it, it is a, I, I love seeing it. I've seen it from Siri Lindley and, and Dave and Mark and uh, the looks on their faces when their athletes do well at an event. They are just proud mamas and papas, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no doubt that I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I would feel that way too. And I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's just a, it's a cool thing to share that journey with people and to really feel invested that way and to realize too. And I've always said this and thought this and I, think I'm learning more now as a father that, that has children um, and maybe more going on in my life than it was just me, you know, when it was just me 
training full time right. as a 25 year old. But I see these age group triathletes that are doing this stuff and they're juggling so many things. And I'm just amazed at what they do. Right. I mean, they're not actually that far behind us as pros. I mean, it gets exponentially more difficult as you get towards that pointy end. But, you know, when you really look at it full, you know, full picture, I guess, I think it's, it's something I'm always amazed by. And it would be cool to have a deeper dive into understanding exactly, you know, what these people are doing, because from the outside, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine doing everything that they do and, and, and still performing at the level that they do. It's the old adage of if you want to get something done and you need help, ask the person that you know that is the busiest because they seem to get it done. And you're right. I, you know, age groupers are come in, you know, say 70 minutes after you do. And it's a uh, mom or dad and they've got three kids and they've got a full-time job and you're scratching your head. Oh my gosh, how, how, how do they do that? But they, they do. That's why I'm so amazed and enamored with all, all the age groupers. Yeah. I want to go back. You ran the 240 in Texas and I had Lindsay Corbin, your dear friend on the show, uh, I haven't brought it out yet, but she, I interviewed her just a few weeks ago. She said she might want to do a standalone marathon because she had never done one outside of an Ironman. Have you ever run a marathon by itself? I never have run a marathon outside of an Ironman. And, uh, I remember getting the qualification letter or the, <coughs> excuse me, the email that came through from Ironman Hawaii that I'd run a qualifying time for Boston. This was yeah. like maybe 2019 or something, or even yeah, maybe 18 or no, sorry, 18. I didn't race because I was injured. It was 17 or 19. I can't remember. But anyway, they sent an email out and I remember thinking, oh, that, that actually sounds pretty cool because I think if I wanted to do one, the ones that come to mind for me are definitely Boston and New York. You know, I think those are kind of the, the iconic ones that, that I would really like to do. And um, but yeah, to answer your question, I've never done one. Uh, the best, my PR is still the 23609 from Florida in 2019. Yeah. And, uh, and I think I could better it by a bit, you know, I mean, I'm not getting any uh, younger, but I think with a standalone, I think something in maybe the mid two twenties would be possible. So yeah, you might see me do that in the next uh, year or two. We'll see. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'll come watch that one. Uh, Ben, you've had, Great partners, great sponsors. Zoot one long time one athletic brewing company. Uh, what do you what do you look for when you partner up with a company? Obviously, they always want something from you, but the other side you want something from them, and you want it to be obviously a good synergy there. So, what do you look for in a in a great partner as a sponsor? Yeah, I mean, really, just what you said. I think uh, you know the, the starting place for for a lot of our partnerships is just kind of looking at our own life and saying, "Is this something that we maybe already use, or that we're you know uh, that we're really curious about using?" Because we have you know heard a lot of good things about it. Um, and yeah, something that I feel like I can definitely be genuine about you know discussing with other people and representing in an authentic way. Um, that's kind of a number one criteria, of course. And then the, having that symbiosis that you mentioned, I feel like a lot of athletes, you know, that I've seen in my, in my career, um, they approach sponsorship sort of with that one way street mentality where it's like, what can the sponsor do for me? And, uh, I've always kind of looked at it. Like I felt a sense of personal responsibility to, to feel like I'm actually giving something back as well. Um, and that, you know, ranges from, of course, getting results on course and, showing that the products work in the way that they're supposed to at a high level, you know, high, high performance, but, um, but yeah, also kind of off, off the course as well, you know, we're connecting with people, having conversations, discussing these things. And so, yeah, I think just finding people 
that are quality people to begin with, and then a product that's quality as well, something that kind of stands the test of time and that can usually tell that pretty early on. So I would say with the majority of my partners, I've been fortunate where I think starting with that kind of criteria has led to some pretty long and, you know, very kind of prosperous relationships for both sides. And, uh, yeah, I would just say to anybody out there who's kind of pursuing that, that, you know, to take a hard look at it, to, to really ask yourself, is this something that I can genuinely represent that I don't have to kind of, you know, make up a story about. Right. And, um, and then additionally to ask yourself that hard question of like, what can you really provide, you know, because that's, what's going to get your foot in the door with them too, is to say, Hey, here's what I have as far as a plan, you know, about how I'm going to represent you. And it's not just that I'm going to be on the race course. It's that I work with my local trap on club team and I do this and this and this. So, yeah. Well, speaking of sponsors, I'm going to pull this one out, and I hope you remember it. It's with Athletic Brewing, and uh, which I love. But I beat the Hoff, everybody. I'm going to let you know that right now. I think it was Oceanside. We get to the Athletic Brewing tent, and for some reason they pitted you and I together to do a, a chugging contest. That's true. True story. True story. And guess who won? Uh, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on a, a, a few things. Um, oh, you're already going to make excuses? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did half Iron Man right before that. That's I know, I know. But then again, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes either. I'm, I, what you do is actually incredible, and I think most people recognize it, but I want to just take a second. I mean, it's physically demanding what you do, you know, and to... I feel like we, we all know, right? Like I've been, it's speaking of sponsors, you go to engagement sometimes and you're there and you are talking with people, you get on stage, you do a question and answer session, whatever it is. And you kind of have that feeling of being up and being on. Right. And I, and it takes, it takes more energy to be that way. And you do this for 17 plus hours straight. So, um, yeah, that's no excuse. You beat me square and fair, <laughs> or, sorry, fair and square. And, uh, we'll have a rematch this year somewhere out there, even though okay. I know you're going to be at the finish lines. I will track you down in California and we'll have a rematch, maybe at the athletic brewing headquarters. Count on it. I'd come there just for that. (laughs) (laughs) Count on it. No keg stands though. Yeah. So Ben, how do you, how do you think our sports doing? Obviously we all want it to grow. We all want it to prosper. We want our businesses to do very well and we want more athletes and people to become enamored with it and come into the sport you know, with all the factions of Iron Man and PTO and Challenge and Clash and Collins Cup, there's just so much out there. Do you believe our sport's heading in the right direction with all those factions to help our sport grow? I mean, I think so. I do actually believe that uh, it's possible to kind of have that symbiosis and to have them, you know, sort of build off of each other, right? I mean, you, I, I see, I think of something like Super League Triathlon and, and ITU. I mean, Super League is not trying to beat ITU. They're simply looking at the calendar and they're, they're saying, hey, we're kind of the premier short course draft legal event that's a little bit different style that's kind of at a different time of year. And so there's space for both of them, right? And they kind of feed off of each other. And I think the same can be possible with PTO and Ironman. Um, you know, I think scheduling these sort of championship races that don't conflict with each other, which seems to still be the case so far is, is a wise move. And then, you know, looking at Ironman, I think the latest moves that they've made, um, people have asked me this recently and I finally feel like I've built up, you know, the, the kind of response that I feel comfortable sharing publicly, which is that I'm actually pretty excited about the change. And I think, um, 
it may have been different in my career if they would have made this switch, you know, when I was pursuing Kona with such fervor. Um, but I think that the, the sport has to change. It has to evolve and grow. Right. And one of the ways that it might do that is to become a rotating championship. And I don't know how you feel about this and, and maybe you've already talked about it out there, but, um, I think it's a lot of positives. And I think that again, you know, it's kind of evolve or die mindset where, um, you know, there's always going to be great battles in our sport, but you know, like you got Mark and Dave, but that, <clears throat> that time is coming on now in some ways. And now you have Christian and Gustav or whatever it is. And so there's similarities, but then there's also an evolution. And I think, yeah, keeping some core components intact, but then also allowing for change is really good. And, um, and I think the main thing really, when, when you talk about the growth of the sport, what I really look at is how can you get young people interested in this sport? How can you get young people interested in endurance sport and keep them interested so that they become Ironman athletes, become triathletes? And one thing I will say is we just, I'm in Tucson, Arizona. We just had the University of Arizona just added a women's triathlon team here yeah. at the NCAA. And I think you see some positive growth there and that can be a great feeder, you know, to, to an eventual Ironman athlete or something like that. But um, that's the main thing I think that I would just, you know, kind of encourage people to focus on is how can we get the young generation interested? Um, but as far as, as the current direction, yeah, I mean, I'm optimistic about it. And I think there's a lot to be positive about. Are you... If I may ask, because I don't know if your calendar's out for this year, if I've seen it, do you plan on racing Nice, the world championship in Nice? It's kind of still to be determined. So <clears throat> I'm looking at doing an Ironman sometime in the summer, which uh, it may even be as late as the last possible qualifier. I'm looking at maybe Lake Placid as a possibility, which is, I think, um, end of July. It was my first Ironman win in 2010. And yeah. um, I'm thinking yeah. about maybe going back there uh, 13 years later, whatever it'll be. So yeah, that would be the last cutoff uh, point um, for qualifying for Nice. And if that were to happen, I think I would definitely go because it would be something, you know, that <laughs> it would be a special moment, right? To have that experience of kind of the the, the changing of the guards in a sense. And um, obviously, Kona 2024 is still also to, to be determined. I mean, I'm not going to do this thing forever. And I don't know. Qualifying gets harder and harder as more and more guys get faster and better in the sport and it gets deeper and deeper. But um but yeah, I think it's definitely a possibility and, uh, I think it'd be cool to be there for it. I think, uh, you know, it's got its own history, as you know, it's, a, you know, it's a big, um, endurance sport in Mecca with its own long history in the sport of Ironman. So right. to be there and, and witness that sort of evolution and change would be pretty special. Well, it wasn't Lake Placid that first year, but I think it was there. What was your second Ironman? My second, well, so I did my very first Ironman 2008 in Arizona, which you, I, I think you were there. Yeah, that I was there. It was a big field. And uh, I remember it was 85 guys, 85 pro men. It was a huge, huge pro field. And then second Ironman that I did was Kona 2009. I didn't do another one until Kona because I got my qualifying spot there. And then my third Ironman would have been St. George 2010, uh, back when they had, you know, the full Ironman there. And then like class with my fourth Ironman. So. I think it was after St. George. Yeah, I got a message or you came up to me because I'd called you and brought you in on the two Ironmans previously. And you said to me, well, well, why didn't you call me an Ironman? <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, what, what do you mean? You're a pro. I, I just didn't really call the pros an Ironman because, you know, here comes 
uh, Ben Hoffman, second place. And, uh, you know, I, I would bring you in as the professional. You go, well, why don't you call, you call me an Iron Man? And it was the first time, and I tell the story today when Ben Hoffman, you know, got, got, jumped all over me for not calling him an Iron Man. So I, I started calling pros an Iron Man, and they would come up. That was cool. I didn't think you were going to call me an Iron Man. I'm a pro. And I go, well, Ben Hoffman jumped on my butt years ago. So. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I set the precedent and, re and rewrote it a little bit because it is important, right? I mean, one one of the beautiful things about our sport, which everyone, you know, kind of brings up, I think, is the fact that we are all out there together on the day, that we really share the day in a way that's different than a lot of other sports. And yeah. you know, as much as we are different in our own category, whatever it is, and racing for, you know, different accolades and money and all these other things, I uh, I really think that we share a lot more than than we are different. So. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. keep calling the pros. Well, you're done now, but yeah, for anyone out there listening that might be taking over this job, <laughs> um, make there sure you, you call go. the pros in Iron Man too. There you go. Ben, what do you want your children to learn from you? That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, one of the first things that come to, comes to mind for me is to, uh, you know, to appreciate hard work as its sort of own reward, right? I mean, not to always be looking for what it leads to necessarily, but to really just enjoy because, um, I mean, this may not sound like the most, uh, you know, I guess the most pleasant thing to say. Um, but I think there's a few things that are kind of, that are guarantees in life. And I think, you know, there's, there's pain, there's uncertainty and there's constant work. And I mean, those are sort of the three cornerstones that come to mind and they all sound kind of negative, but I think when you accept that, when you just realize that that's part of what's, you know, being human really is, then you can start to work with it and reframe it in a positive way. And for me, one of the most valuable things has just been, yeah, to learn that, you know, hard work is its own reward and you don't always have to look for something more beyond it or to try to escape it because it's going to always be there staring you in the face. And when you learn to embrace it, it really becomes a beautiful thing, a beautiful process. So that's definitely one thing I think also, treating people with kindness and, and, and trying not to judge because you really don't know what happens in other people's lives oftentimes. So that's kind of another main cornerstone just to treat people with kindness and respect, um, which I think, you know, we can all always improve on. Um, but yeah, those are two that come to mind for sure. And then, yeah, to just kind of really be passionate about something to, you know, to find something that they truly care deeply about whatever it is and to pursue it with, you know, everything they have really. Well, that's, that's, that's perfect. And, and I know they're going to learn that from you and Kelsey. There's no doubt. I'm going to throw, this is the first time I'm doing this in the podcast after a year and a half, quick questions. I'm going to give you 10 quickies so that people get to know you a little bit better. Here we go. You, gotta you, get, gotta you answer it quickly. Cause I'll ask them quickly. Okay. What's your favorite meal? Pizza, yeah. What's your resting heart rate? 37. What's your favorite movie? Top Gun. How many hours do you sleep a night? Eight and a half. The last book you read cover to cover? It's called The Drop. It's a surfing book. Netflix, Apple TV, or Amazon Prime? Netflix. Favorite beverage? Uh, athletic Brewing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made them. You may be the only one I asked. That. <laughs> Favorite bike climb? Favorite bike climb? Mount Lemon. Yeah, right in my backyard here. Yeah. Camping or cozy hotel room? Camping. Favorite sport besides triathlon? Uh, that would be probably college basketball. Would you rather discuss politics or the weather? Weather's good in me, yeah. 
<laughs> okay. And our last question on find your finish line comes out of the Baja 1000. I've got friends that race the Baja 1000 have won it numerous times. And afterwards they get together and they sit at a table. They call it table racing. When I first heard that, I go, what do you mean table racing? Yeah, we sit around the table, reminisce about the race and things that happened. And, you know, it's an endurance event. They are out there for 24 hours. So I call this tri-table racing. Reminisce with us. An event you did, something that happened at the event, positive or negative, that comes to your memory. Tri-table race with us. I mean, the one that really comes to mind is definitely uh, 2012 uh, in St. George, Utah. I mean, it was just the most unforgettable day, mostly due to the weather, um, but also because I did win the race after three attempts and I had a big history of going there. We had been down there for, you know, training trips when we were in college. I was, like I said, at the University of Montana, Missoula. And in March, we would try to get out of the winter. We'd go south and we made it as far as St. George. We'd post up there and do some training in March. Um, so we were doing training camps there in like 2004, five, six. And, uh, yeah, so I knew the area well. <clears throat> and when they announced an Ironman in 2010, I knew I had to be there. So I did the event, came second that year, fourth the next year. And then on the final year, when they announced that it was going to be the last year, um, I actually won the race. And it was just, it was one of those days, kind of like this Patagon man race where I took everything I had. Um, we had, you know, the day started out totally calm and fine and literally within three or 400 meters of the swim, I remember rounding a buoy and I was like, oh, you know, one of the like watercraft boats, one of the safety boats has gotten really close to us because it just hit us with like a pretty big, you know, wave. And I was like, I don't know why they're getting so close to us out here. And then I looked up, you know, and I realized that it was just, it wasn't any boat. It was just white cap waves that were coming at us, three, four foot waves. And uh, I looked over and I saw a guy sitting in a kayak and he was tucked against a buoy that was out there and he was getting toss side to side and he was trying to balance himself and not get taught you know tossed from the kayak and i thought to myself i was like oh this is all just changed you know like this is no longer like uh just swim and get out of the water it's like survival mode because if the guy in the kayak who's supposed to be out here to help us potentially is only saving his own life then we're on our own and uh got out of the swim got on the bike and i was amazed that they kind of let the race go on i'm really glad they did <clears throat> and the bike was howling winds it was the only time in my career that i've been blown off the road uh, I got hit with a gust of wind and I got knocked off the road. I was able to ride it out, get back on the road um, without any, you know, crash or anything like that. And uh, yeah, it was just moments when you're going as hard as you could and you're going eight miles an hour into a headwind and then times when you're going 55 miles an hour with a tailwind downhill. Um, so yeah, it was a wild day and it really took everything I had to get across the line. And uh, and yeah, it was one of the most special moments in my career. So that's that uh, one I want to share with everybody. That's a good chair. And, and I do remember that swim. It's almost like I turned my back on the reservoir, turned back around and go, what's that? Whitecaps. What do you mean? I mean, that's how, that's how fast that happened. So thanks for sharing that with us. And uh, I'm glad you came across the line in first place. Ben, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Our sport's a better place to be because Ben Hoffman's been in it all this time and giving everything he can give. So Thank you very much. How can people find you and follow you? Uh, yeah, I mean, we run, you know, most of our stuff's done on Instagram at B Hoffman Racing. Um, and we also on Facebook, same thing, uh, Ben Hoffman Racing. So those are kind of the main areas. And uh, yeah, we need to update our website. We're a little behind there. Uh, I think the pandemic threw us off and having kids too. But uh, also BenHoffmanRacing.com, you can jump on there and check out, uh, you know, the schedule and everything else. So 
yeah, follow along and uh, thanks for all the support to everybody listening. And the same goes to you, Mike. Thanks for all your contributions to the sport. And uh, it's definitely a better place having had you in it. Well, thank you, Ben. I, I appreciate that. And yeah, you got to check out Ben's Instagram. Watching that that uh, Wash River on your ride the other day in Tucson, I know exactly. It's it's crazy with the rain we've had out here. So thanks again, Ben, for uh, being a guest here on Find Your Finish Line. And thank you to all of you that have tuned in for the last year and a half. I'm going to keep this baby going all year long and into next year. And always remember, you are the cause of your own experiences. You keep those experiences as positive as you can, and you will always find your finish line. Take care of yourselves, everyone. Aloha.